0: Welcome back to the TM Live book Show. I'm Michelle Magwood. And I'm talking now to Mark Gefisser. Mark is best known for his acclaimed biography of Tarbo Mbeki, um, A Dream Deferred, which won the Alan Payton Prize in 2008. And he's back with a new book now. It's called Lost and Found in Johannesburg. It's an astonishing book. It's part memoir, it's part social history. It is a, 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 an intense passing. Of who we are um, and who Mark is himself. So welcome, Mark. I've been looking forward to talking about this. It's with good you. to be with you, Michelle. Thank you. Let's um, think about how how did the book start to form in your mind? Because I think it was it was quite a while in the making.
1: Yeah, you know, in, in the work I've been doing for the last two decades as a journalist and as a writer, I found that I've been collecting images, and I've been drawn to the visual specifically, and specifically photographs and maps. I mean, ever since I was a little boy, I've had a thing about maps, and I write about that in, in the book. But, but, but there, was a, there, was, there was an archive that was kind of accumulating on my desk. And I began sort of shuffling these images around and, and trying to make sense of why I'd collected certain images and what the relationship to them were, or of each image was to the other, and, and how these images sort of told me who I was and where I came from. Some of the images were from Family Archive. Um, particularly after my father died five years ago, I started going through all the Family Archive. Some of the images were images that I collected uh, when I was researching the Mbeki book. And in fact, the, um, the spark to the book, th- th- where the book really began, was an image I found uh, when I was trying to uh, understand the world that Thabo Mbeki came to when he arrived in Johannesburg from the Eastern Cape in 1960. And I went to the drum archives and I found this extraordinary article by Nat Nakasa called Fringe Country, which was all about people kind of living across the color bar, people playing together, sleeping together, not sleeping together, excuse me, it wouldn't be that, but (laughs) playing together, um, going to weddings together, going to bookshops together, and swimming together. And I've always had a thing about swimming in swimming pools, and it's something I explore in the book as well. Um, And there's a photograph of a black woman, a black man and a white woman, in a clench in a swimming pool in suburban Johannesburg. And I became entranced by this picture, wanted to find out more about it. It turns out it was at Brahm and Molly Fisher's house, and their their weekend swimming swimming parties were were well-known as kind of these defiant moments where people across the races did come and swim together. But I sort of held that picture up against an image I'd found in my family archive of my parents in the water in an embrace. And it was out of the the comparison I made between those two images that I began a riff that became an essay that became Mm -hmm. a book.
0: So let's go back to the maps. I mean, you were inordinately interested in maps as a little boy.
1: I was a nerdy little boy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What do they mean for you?
1: Maps have always meant um, some kind of have always represented to me some kind of transport elsewhere, and I think that as a little boy, I used maps. Um, I was entranced by them from a very young age, and I think I used them perhaps to trans to transcend the suburban bounds of my very comfortable upper middle class santan childhood. You know, nothing to complain about in that childhood. I was. It was a. I, I, this isn't a memoir of a of a, of, of, a, of a tough life at all. No. Um, but I think that the the maps helped me imagine living elsewhere. And as an adult, I've, I've often thought about why I needed to do that. And 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 the best I can come up with is is that um, I probably wasn't that comfortable as a child in my childhood. I always had a sense of being different, and that sense of difference uh, I think is linked to my sexuality,
0: which would uh, only manifest itself in adolescence. Much
1: later, mm. but but you but sense that difference. There was a sense of not belonging. Of belonging in my family, but not necessarily belonging, you know, on the playground uh, where I wasn't a sort of stereotypical boy or, or belonging in my childhood. I, I, you know, I read very early, for example. I started reading age three, but I couldn't write until I was, I think, seven. So I was an odd child. And, um, and, and the way this book begins uh, is with a game that I played when I was a little boy, that I've retrospectively called "dispatcher." Should I talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yes, do. So, so the so the game was is that I, I don't know if you or your um, or your listeners remember what the Joburg Street Guide used to be like uh, before the sort of A to Z came along. It was called the Holmden's. It had a blue cloth cover. It was totally eccentric. There was no scale. There was no continuous pages. But this was the map of Johannesburg, and I loved this map. And I would play a game uh, where I would. Open up the phone book, find an address, uh, then find that it, find a name and an address, and then find that address um, in the Holmden's map book, and then dispatch an imaginary courier from our home to wherever this person lived. And I could play this game for hours. And in fact, I would get into trouble for taking the map book out of the car to play the game. So there was a, a rule that the map book had to stay in the car, which meant that I spent a lot of my childhood in the car in the garage playing this game, and and. That, I mean, that's cute, I know, but what's important about it for me is is that um, there came a time when I found one of the few black names in the book, in the phone book. And the address was in Alexandra, and this precipitated two shocks. The first shock was realizing that Alexandra was on the next page. And I hadn't kind of clocked that yet, even though I was obsessed with this mm, man.
0: And that you knew that Alex was there.
1: I knew. Th- I knew there was this place called Alex because... We lived in Santa, and the people who worked for us would you know, go to church in Alex, but I hadn't, it, it might as well have been on another planet, so I just hadn't noticed it on the next page. And it was you know, closer than, than my school, closer than when my granny lived in Hilbra. It was right there. So that was the first shock, and the second shock was that when I then needed to dispatch my courier to deliver the goodies to Mr. Impatlele in Alexandra, there was no way through. Even though the two pages were connected on the key page, there was no mapped way to get a courier from page seventy-seven to page seventy-nine, mm. and this sort of keyed me into the sort of atomization, the weirdness of the city we lived in. A little bit later, at the time of the Soweto uprising, when I needed to find out more about Soweto, given who I was, I went immediately to the Holmdens again, and I, to my to my shock, I discovered that Soweto wasn't there. It just wasn't there. Ma- didn't exist. Didn't exist on the astounding. map. astounding yeah so so this sort of i, I use this I, I sort of riff on this through this through the book to kind of explore the ways that um we as Joe burgers and we as South Africans are kind of perhaps inordinately uh, and uh, people of of our generation, perhaps not younger born frees you know because today maps have no boundaries you go onto google Maps and there, there's no you don't even see political boundaries on them it's just endless it's infinite, but for people of my generation. Being a Johannesburger or being a South African is about borders and boundaries, and either sticking within your borders or being at the frontier, or, or trying to cross the border and being in a borderland. And a lot of my a lot of my life has been about discovering that borderland, which is where I think I belong. And um, in fact, I think Joburg is a borderland itself, made up of all these frontiers. And that's what I try and explore in this book.
0: Now, the, the maps are the, the sort of scaffolding of your, of your book, and another um, map that you examine is underground, um, and you come to realize that Johannesburg's built almost on air, if you think about it, um, of or, or the deep caverns underneath.
1: Yeah, you know, it was, um, I, it, it was great where I discovered the underground maps because I actually was underground at the time in the sort of third basement of the Johannesburg Public Library to which I'd been given unfettered access, and I was looking through all these maps of Joburg and I realised that the, that what's beneath us is intensely mapped as well, all the way from the very beginning back to the eighteen nineties, uh, through beautiful, beautiful vertical cross sections, some of which are um, are reproduced in my book. Um, and and I began thinking about underground. I began thinking about how. Um, this city has both a literal and figurative underground. I mean, the literal underground is the one you've just spoken about. And it's one we, we, we know so little about, and we're, we're in denial of. I mean, we're, we're on shaky ground. We're on hollow ground. We're on, uh, we, th- that we build our buildings. Th- there's a vertical equation to Johannesburg. The, the deeper miners dig, the higher we build our buildings. So there's that literal underground, and the literal underground becomes a figurative underground as well. And the best example for that now is, in fact, this whole zamazama crazy phenomenon of illegal miners who will not come above. They will not come back. They will not allow themselves to be rescued because what they're doing is illegal. So the figurative underground is, is the way Johannesburg has always been built on... The border of what is legal or permissible on that frontier. And you know, Charles van Onselen did extraordinary work exploring the way um, uh, downtown Johannesburg was actually known in the mining days is French Fontaine because mm. there were more brothels than any other business because, of course, there were all these single men here. Yeah,
0: the fox and the Flies, excellent. But
1: exactly. It tells that story. So then there's that figurative underground. But I also started thinking about another figurative underground, and my book is about trying to fire that synapse, which is that when I was a little boy and I started thinking and reading about my sexuality, I came across the phrase, in the closet. And, of course, we South Africans were Anglos. I didn't know what a closet was. And in my imagination, a closet was somewhere underground, and being in the in the closet meant being underground. And I'm not sure why I was in the closet. Where uh, it, it was a kind of a circle of Hades mm, and hidden, and hidden, concealed, and and a lot of my understanding of myself and my city, and my identity as a South African, is 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 looking at the connections between that underground identity and the underground identities of other South Africans.
0: Um, I, uh, we'll talk about uh, the gay um, the gay community in, in South Africa, um, particularly the black gay community and how difficult it must have been. But it reminded me of um, a book that came out a couple of years ago by Euphrida Ho, which is about the Chinese ch- community. And her father was a farfi man. And she writes very eloquently about how the Chinese community had to live in the cracks of um, of society, so again, there's another hidden um, hidden people um, in in the city.
1: It's so it's it's so interesting that you're speaking about living living in the cracks and the Chinese community living in the cracks, and in fact, this does link to to the gay stuff because the book that I'm researching now is looking at um, the new global conversation about gay rights, LGBT rights, and the people I'm interviewing in South Africa are LGBT refugees from other parts of Africa who've sought refuge here and are applying for asylum on the basis of sexual orientation. And and as I go and visit them, and and I'm doing this research mainly in Cape Town, as I go and visit them in the Cape Flats, I keep on saying to myself, there are refugees in every single little crack. Refugees, if you want to call them economic refugees, but let's let's say foreigners, immigrants, in every crack of our cities. And, and I think our cities have always been like that. So there, there, there's a sort of paradox to Joburg because I speak about the borders and the boundaries and, and how atomized we are. But I but I also understand Joburg as a city of thresholds. And and thresholds mean doorways. And, and, and there's always kind of space that is found. There's always a corner. I mean, the way the... Um, the way East Africans have kind of burrowed into those sleek, modernist buildings on Jeppe Street, Where the, like um, hermit crabs.
0: Yeah, Anna Trapido took me to lunch in, in Little Addis, in what I think was a gynecologist's <laughs> waiting room. Yeah. And well, these beautiful carved bookcases, oh. and you could just imagine um, the nice doctor coming well, the name through the, there. The, the
1: <laughs> nameplate is probably still on the door, Dr. Goldberg. Yes. You <laughs> know, but
0: Astonishing food, and there it is. The other yeah, this um, little Addis, it's, it's a little city on its own. So, so um, once again, uh, Johannesburg is, is is reinventing itself. But let's go back to the um, idea of immigration and. Your map of – you went searching for your um, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. You uh, you map your family in this book as well. Uh, and you mentioned the old cemetery in Hillbrow mm. um, and how it was laid out. And, and you reproduce the map, mm. which is astonishing. Mm. There's a Kuli section and there's a Mohammedan section and there's a, um, a Cape people section. Mm. A, um, as a as a as an Irish person, I was interested in down below. There was a large um, Anglican one, and then very small Catholic yes, next to it, yes. and then and then the buffer zone down the middle is a, uh, the Jewish, it's cemetery. Jewish section.
1: Yeah, which is where my great grandparents, who died in the f- Great Flu Epidemic of 1918, are buried. And um, the Jewish section, I mean, it's it, it's 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 and it's by the way, it's very well maintained by the Johannesburg Parks Department. It's an extraordinary place, and, and people should go there. I mean, it's, it's um, the, 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 the section where your people would have been, um, where the Church of England and the Roman Catholics, et cetera, are, is, is, is just gorgeous. I mean, it, it feels like Highgate or Père Lachaise, and, and with these huge old trees and these really, really elegant cenotaphs. It's quite something. And then the, the Jewish section down the middle is like a ghetto. I mean, it's incredibly crowded, because I think no one imagined how many Jews would come to Johannesburg. Um, so it, it, it really feels like that. And then the section for non-whites is, is devastating because mm. there's nothing there. Um, all there is is that there's, there's, there's a few um, broken-down tombs. Uh, there's a memorial to Enoch Sontonga and then there's a, there's a eucalyptus glade. And the reason why there's a eucalyptus glade is because when black people were put into communal graves... Um, they weren't allowed individual graves uh, when the cemetery was founded. They, they couldn't afford coffins either. So because of the stench, um, eucalyptus, eucalyptus twigs were put onto the graves as a way of marking the memorial, because they also, they, it, it would have cost too much to put up a tombstone, but also to sort of offset the stench. And so all the, the memory of all the people who were buried there is this eucalyptus glade, which I think is kind of gorgeous, because, of course, um, bluegums are exotics, they're not indigenous. And it says something about the, the sort of hybrid mongrel nature of Johannesburg, too. There's, sorry, before we move on, there's one category in that graveyard that you didn't mention, maybe because you're polite and you didn't want to say the word. But in the black section of the cemetery is, is marked out a section in the map. You've got the Mohammedans. You've got the Cape people. You've got the Chinamen. You've got the coolies. You've got the Kafirs. And then you've got the Christian Kafirs. Oh. And allegedly, the this, this cemetery is divided by religion. If that's the case, why are the Christian Kafirs not with their with co-religionists down in the white part of the cemetery? But of course, it's got nothing to do with religion.
0: Apartheid, even, in death. Yeah. staggering. Yeah. Mark, please tell us about your trip to Lithuania in search of your great-grandparents there.
1: Um, Michelle, it was a wonderful trip. It was something I was meant to have done with my father. He wanted to go because both his parents were born there. He didn't make it in his lifetime. So I decided to do it after his um death with two friends of mine, both of whom also come from that part of the world. And and there were a few extraordinary things about it. But um what was really special for me was that the Gewissestetel, which is called Pojalva, um, which is you know one of these little villages where Jews lived, um you know, everyone says about Lithuania, You go I mean, Joe Slovo wrote this in his, in his book, Dan Jacobson wrote it in his book, you go to Lithuania looking for roots, and you, there's nothing, and you come back, and there was nothing, there was nothing there. It was all obliterated by Nazism and Stalinism, there's nothing there. And of course, 99% or 97% of, of Lithuanian Jews actually were killed in the Holocaust, the highest percentage anywhere. But what was extraordinary, what was such a gift to me was how much was there for me. And I don't know whether that's just because I'm a journalist who looks. Mm. But um, one of the things that really was amazing that was there was in the village of Pajalva. It was this amazing old woman who was the director of the school called Zita. And she um, had curated a little museum in the school. And it was a museum of the history of Pajalva. So she met us, and she took us around the museum. And in this museum, she has meticulously and beautifully um, Conserved, preserved the history of the Jews of Gelva, and she, for her it's a sort of life mission. And when we asked her why it was her life mission, she had this whole story about how her life was saved by Jews when she was a little girl. I'm not sure if that's the case. I think this has something to do with guilt about what her parents might have done. But whatever, she's done it, and she's done it beautifully. And and because I'm obsessed with maps, I was immediately drawn to this beautiful map that she'd made of the village of Gelva in the year 1941. With little pieces of um, blue and green, cut-out cardboard, marking which were the Jewish houses and which were the Lithuanian houses, and the point of the map was to show that the Jewish houses and the Lithuanian houses were totally mixed, and that that before um, Nazism came along, we lived together, and it was extraordinary. It was so moving, and I kno- and I know from my own family history and the and the wonderful memoir that my uncle Izzy had written in. Um, Yiddish, and that I got translated where our family home was, so which was a, a home by the river where my, my family were leather workers, and so there was a there was a tannery and there was a matzah. and the home isn't there anymore, but I knew where it was, and I could see the little blue mark for them, but the green marks around them, and it was incredibly moving for me, and and what it, what it's become for me as I've done this work, is a sort of counterholmdens, a, a kind of um, I'll say a fantasy because I think this, this notion of a boundless world is a, is a fantasy, but a, but a kind of uh, an imaginary of a world where there wasn't a thick red line between us and them until the Nazis came and drew it or
0: hmm.
1: until the apartheid colonialists came and drew it or whatever.
0: You, you wrote, um, write uncomfortably, of course, about how the villagers were killed by the Nazis and um, in underground tanks Uh, which I think were used to store oil. Oil. Um, And the image you create is is very brief but very sharp, and that is of fish in a barrel because they were the circular underground. Mm. And the the image is so... And once again, a reader, you find yourself putting the book down and thinking. And it occurred to me that I've been reading about the Holocaust since Anne Frank's diary when I was 13. So that's 40 years. And it doesn't matter whether it's the book thief or whether it's Primo Levi or whether it's the boy with the striped pajamas. Every time you read it again, it's like walking into a cement wall. It is so big and it's so, it's so <clears throat> dense. The, the whole idea um, that you can never get used to it. it always has a shock and an impact when you read about it. Do you think we'll ever Ever come to, to absorb? To is there a way around around it? Are we? Do you know what I'm trying to say?
1: Yeah, I do, and and I think I've got two answers to that. The first is is that I had a, a similar experience to you, but probably even more intense because I'm Jewish. Mm. So I was raised on these stories. I went to a Jewish school where you know probably before we should have we were seeing images of. Of survivors from the holo- from the Holocaust, once the death camps were, were liberated, but I never found my personal place in those stories. I never, they never they, they they were that cement wall, and they they were actually for me there was something worse than that cement wall, um, Michelle, because they were so often used to justify s- Zionism in Israel, and and I really struggled with that, because there was a sense of as I, as, I, as I as I as I developed my own critical opinion about what Israel does. To Palestinians, um, I I began began to get really bothered by the logic that said because this was done to us, we can do anything to, to protect ourselves from this happening again. And um, and what this trip did for me was it gave me it made it personal in a way that m- that enabled me to integrate that story this concrete wall story. And that meant going to the shtetl. It also meant going to Auschwitz, which was an extraordinary experience. And and, and I actually think that's the way, I, for those who can afford to. So that, that's the first way that, 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 that it got integrated for me. The second way it got integrated for me is I very um, deliberately and self-consciously write about uh, the Holocaust experiences of my family while I'm walking around the Bramfontein Cemetery. And I compare the experiences... Well, no, I don't compare because I want to say this isn't about comparison. I, I, I remember walking in that forest where those subterranean oil tanks were while I'm walking through that eucalyptus glade that I just told you about. And what I'm doing, and I was actually thinking of the one forest when I was in the glade, and what I'm doing is, is I'm making the connections. And that doesn't mean to say that, you know, the the way the memory of the black people in brown Cemetery has been obliterated compares to the way my family was obliterated in Lithuania. And it doesn't mean to say, of course, that I'm a victim the way black people in South Africa were victims, because of course I'm not. I never once in my life experienced anti-Semitism, even though my father did very intensely. But it's to say there is a continuum of gross violations of human rights that comes through racial discrimination and I think that it, when we understand that in South Africa, like, I'm really happy that there's going to be a new museum in, in Johannesburg that's not a museum of the Holocaust, but that's a museum of genocide. genocide. And I think that's right. And and yes, there is something, like I had, like, I had always wanted to say, don't make a special case of the Jews. Look at all the people who have been victims of genocide, particularly in the Second World War. They're the homosexuals, they're the Roma's. they're the p- political people. But you know what? When I went to Eastern Europe and when I went to Auschwitz, I realized that the Jews were a special case. No question. It was about obliterating a people. It wasn't about that for anybody else. But nonetheless, you can still make the connections, mm. Even while acknowledging that the Jews were a special case, you can look at the consequences consequences of gross violations of human rights everywhere, including here in South mm. Africa.
0: Now, threaded through the book mark is um an incident Ah, i love that don't you love that word incident it's become so loaded (laughs) in south africa when we say they've had an incident it means so much to us so i have to
1: say that whenever people say to me the incident i say to them even though i shouldn't what i'm about to say to you Mm -hmm. know i say the attack
0: the attack absolutely but
1: but you know we all say it of course
0: you had um, you and two um, of your dear friends, uh, B and Katie, had a very bad attack in Kilani. You start the book with it, you thread it through, um, and of course you examine it in depth later on in the book. You wouldn't briefly take us through um, what happened, but I'd really like to concentrate on the aftermath of um, of how you've been, of how it affected you, and how it changed you.
1: Mm. So yeah, I won't I won't give chapter a verse and ch- verse of it, but I was. Uh, in fact, while I was revising the manuscript of this book, I, um, I was carrying the manuscript around, and had handwritten notes all over it. Um, and I went to spend the evening with my friends B and Katie in their flat in Kilani, overlooking the wilds. And while we were watching TV, we were the victims of a very brutal home invasion that lasted three hours. Guns, um, a little bit of physical violence. To me, one of my friends was raped. It was terrible. One would have thought indescribable, but I seem to have managed to describe it. And um, uh, I I write about it in the book um, because it happened and because this is a book about my relationship with Johannesburg and because this is a book about borders and boundaries and how those boundaries are transgressed. And because I um, was very worried that what would happen to me after this attack is, is that the lager would go up high, as it happens to so many people. Uh-huh. And why wouldn't it? And, and I really wanted to fight that. And, um, and my friends really did too. And, and one of the um, indicators to how we should fight that happened during the attack itself, which was that there was this extraordinary moment near the beginning of the attack, uh, at the beginning of the attack, where just before she was being tied and bound, my friend B, who's a very wise older woman, um, said to one, said to the assailants, would you mind giving me a sip of my tea? I've just made it um, because my throat's dry. And I couldn't see anything because my glasses had been knocked off my head, but I looked out of the corner of my eye and I no- noticed that they were giving her the tea, and it just came to me in a minute what she was doing and what we needed to do if we were going to survive. We needed to get them to see us as human beings. Mm, to normalize Ra-
0: it in some way.
1: To humanize it. Humanize to see it. us as human beings rather than something that needed to be dispensed with to get in, in between them and the gold, if there was gold. It turns out there wasn't. But we needed to get them to see that we were human beings, which meant we needed to appeal to their humanity and we needed to see them as human beings too. And what was really interesting in these three hours we spent with them were their moments of humanity. I mean, the way they called me and Katie, grandmother and sister. And every time they did this, I thought, these men are monsters. They're behaving like monsters now. But their grandsons and their brothers, they were good kids. And uh, this came. This happened to me uh, after the attack. I kept on finding myself singing um, the struggle hymn, Senzenina. You know, what have we done? What have we done, O oh Lord? What have we done, O oh Lord, to deserve this? That was, that was sung at you know all the funerals. And it's, it's very potent. I mean, I'm not a believer myself, but but what have we done to deserve this? What have we done to our society? What's gone wrong that we've turned these boys into monsters? And um, it, it kind of opened a vein of, of humanism for me that, that just made me realize that that the path to healing was to... It's not about forgiving. I mean, wha- one of these guys is, is sitting for 14 years in jail, and I'm really glad he's there. And I did everything in my power to make sure that the criminal justice system worked to get him into jail. So it's not about being soft and mushy, but it's about always acknowledging the other mm. and trying to understand where the other comes from. And that's, I guess, that's my sort of, um, that, that's a kind of life motto that was um, that was reinforced by what happened. And, and so, I n- you know, weird. I mean, people kept on exhorting me to let my anger out. I didn't feel anger I felt terrible sadness the the other thing that's really important about the aftermath that, that that I feel very strongly about is that um I think all too often those of us who are middle class kind of opt out of the system we private for 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 good reason we privatize our health care we privatize our education we privatize our security too and there was this moment where we we were um we were really bothered at how useless the police were, or how overworked they were, whatever, that we called in a private investigator. And he came. He a real big old slab of Ancien Regime who came into, ma- into B and, and, and Katie's flat and sat himself down. And he said, right, what do you want? And we said, um, we want justice. And he said, you're not going to get it, so what do you want? And we looked at each other, and we said, what's on the table? <laughs> you know, what are you offering? And he gave this terrible kind of ugh, sickly, deathly grin, and he said, let's just say I can make sure that they never do business again. And we looked at each other in that moment, and we, were, and we said, no, that's not what we want. Thank you for coming to see us. Bye-bye. And we decided we were going to make the criminal justice system work for us, and we did. Mm-hmm. We were very lucky. We were lucky that one of our guys one of our assailants was a, a muhu who didn't wear gloves and who had a previous record we were lucky to have a a really excellent magistrate um, who ran his court very well and I was very gratified he found out about my launch last night in the city press and he came last night so we were lucky to find a little pool of of um, Efficiency in mm-hmm. the criminal justice system. Competence, mm. thank you, that's the word. And and I know that it's, I know that, and also one of the reasons why we were able to access that was because of our own empowerment. Like, all the time while I was going through this, I was thinking, yes, if I was just like a nobody, anybody from Sebulkeng or Timbisa, I wouldn't get this kind of attention. I'm getting it because I'm white, I'm middle class, I'm bolshe, I'm a famous journalist, like... So you realize the iniquity, but still, there's a there's a kind of, for me, it was a real act of faith to trust in the system and get the system to work for us. It could have turned out a very different way, but, but I'm really happy it turned out the way it
0: did. It did. It certainly is. Mark. What I love about your books um, and uh, and Ivan Vladislavich is that you is you make me see the city with different eyes. You and you yeah to examine it more closely, to to be more aware of other people and other people's backstories. And that's what I love about about um, this kind of writing. You spend you split your time between here and Paris. How are you um, claiming Paris um, and learning its backstories when you're there?
1: I'm passing through Paris. We live in Paris because my husband has a job there. And when he came home one day and said, I've been offered a job in Paris, I'm like, I said, that's not a hardship posting. <laughs> we're, no. we're, we're going. And um, it was really fortunate because it was as I was beginning this book, that uh, beginning the writing of this book that we made the move. And um, Paris is just a great city to think about cities from because it is the city about cities it is the city that defines urbanism and it's a, it's a city that is so n- the anti joburg it's a city of flânerie you know the, the the tradition of the flâneur baudelaire walter benjamin mm. the, the, the joy of kind of wandering aimlessly and getting lost and you know you can do that in paris because you know you'll find your way home and you'll be safe and we can't do that here and 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 i i just love being a flâneur in paris i'm i'm a kind of um I'm a flaneur on a bike rather than on foot, and I and I don't have a car, and I love not having a car, and I when I can I just get on my bike and I ride around Paris, and um, but it's always as an outsider, and it's uh, one of the things I've realised about Paris, an idea that I have about Paris is that is why so many generations of writers and artists have kind of sought refuge or exile in. In Paris, And why, even as a little boy, I had this dream that one day I'd grow up and be a writer in Paris is because Paris is actually a very, very comfortable place to be alienated in. And you want to be alienated when you're writing. You know, you don't want to be bothered. And Parisians do not bother you. They do not give a damn. Nonetheless, the guy in the cafe knows exactly how you like your coffee. (laughs) Madame at the boulanger knows exactly how you like your bread. So it's comfortable. And that's been wonderful for me. And one of the things I've been trying to do in Johannesburg, and, and, and the form of my book, my book—I I see my book as an as, as an as an act of flânerie, and I'm a flâneur in this book. And as I'm walking, as I'm walking through Joburg, even though often I'm not actually walking for the reasons why people don't walk in Johannesburg, I kind of meet up with somebody who takes me along the way—a lesbian Sangorma, a a. The Aaron Brockovich of South Africa fighting acid mine drainage. An older gay man, a, a, a cross-dresser who was arrested in 1966. And and, and, and it's, it, it is, in a way, I mean, I, I, I feel this book is an homage to um, to several Johannesburgers and, and most powerfully to Ivan Vladislavich, to William Kentridge, and to David Goldblatt. Um, and, and, and one of the things I do in this book is, is that the book's got a lot of images in it and um, I, 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 I write about the images of these other people including Nicholas Lobo, or Santu King. King but so that's what Paris has been for me mm. in this book it's been a reference point rather than a place I'm exploring in and of itself. Sure.
0: Well, you've taken um, the work of those, those people, Ivan, William, etc., and you've just honestly taken it to a whole other level. It's such a deeply humane book, Mark, and, and so, so very thought-provoking. I, I really must congratulate on it. Our, um, it's a superb book. That is Lost and Found in Johannesburg by Mark Kaffirza. Thank you for coming by to talk about it, Mark.
1: Thank you, Michelle, for having me.